This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Friday, March 24th. For once, Congress looks united, and that's bad news for TikTok. We start here. In an unfiltered grilling of TikTok CEO, lawmakers called China the ultimate influencer. It's been said it's like allowing the Soviet Union the power to produce Saturday morning cartoons during the Cold War. A ban has never looked more likely, and video makers know it. We'll take you to the Capitol. Can parents be tried for a mass shooting carried out by their child? These ones will. The shooter's parents were called in the morning of that massacre. A panel of judges clears the way for a momentous trial. And a generation after hip-hop's turf wars, more and more rappers are dying. Fans are consistently grieving. What's happening in a genre that's long been seen as notorious? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. It's a pretty rare thing in this country for politicians to tell someone they need to sell their business. That the company itself is fine, it's just that the owner should not have the right to own it. It's even rarer for members of both parties to agree on such a bold move, and it's virtually unheard of for a business that is insanely popular among their constituents. And yet, yesterday, when the CEO of TikTok showed up on Capitol Hill, sat down in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and tried to convince lawmakers that President Biden was wrong to demand a sale, there was not a lot of sympathy from these lawmakers staring back at him. Let's go straight to ABC's Jay O'Brien, who covers Congress. In fact, he's at the House now where this all went down. Jay, we know at this point TikTok is owned by a Chinese parent company. We know that China exerts a lot of control over its company, so there are security concerns. But the question had been how serious the U.S. government might be about forcing a sale. What did this hearing tell us? It's interesting. So the day before this hearing, I stayed late in the House. And I was asking lawmakers, what do you want to hear from the next day's hearing? The CEO of TikTok, what do you want him to say? Is there anything he could say to change your mind? And I heard a bunch of lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats say, there's not much that could change their minds, but they'll have an open mind and they do want to hear him out. Mr. Crew, welcome to the most bipartisan committee in Congress. Fast forward to the next day, to that hearing, And it's clear from minute one of this really highly anticipated hearing that there was virtually nothing Sho Chu, who's the CEO of TikTok, could say to the House Energy and Commerce Committee that was going to change many or all of their minds on this app. It's been said it's like allowing the Soviet Union the power to produce... Saturday morning cartoons during the Cold War. We heard the chair of the committee, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, say that she wants TikTok to be banned. We heard from lawmakers who pushed Shochu on TikTok's ties to China. It's also worried that uh, TikTok uh, is the world's most powerful and extensive propaganda machine uh, allowing the Chinese Communist Party to use TikTok's platform to influence public opinion. and That's one of their fundamental concerns, data privacy and misinformation, and all of that rooted in TikTok's relationship that it's owned by a Chinese company. One congresswoman pushed Shochu, the CEO, specifically on this idea of data. Why would the Chinese government 
sidestep uh, their uh, national law, including Article 7, Article 10, um, uh, in terms of user data. Can the Chinese government access data from TikTok? Can it request that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, give them information on U.S. users? That's something TikTok says cannot happen, that they're working to make sure can definitely not happen. Our plan is to move American data to be stored on American soil. And Shochu says uh, he's not seen any evidence that the Chinese government has access to user data or any kinds of data. Hmm. And Anna Eshu says, I find that actually preposterous. I have uh, looked in, I have seen no evidence of this happening. And that was pretty much the theme over the entire five and a half hour hearing, Brad. Like you should have come here with proof that this isn't happening. Otherwise, sorry, like we're just, we just don't buy this. Exactly. And, and a lot of it was rooted in concerns, not necessarily about what TikTok is doing. Now, there is uh, some cases where TikTok is accused of surveilling journalists, but a lot of the concerns lawmakers voiced in that hearing was about what TikTok could do. You'll say anything to avoid this outcome, like you are 100 percent responsible for what TikTok does or that your ties to the Chinese Communist Party through ByteDance is just a myth. We aren't buying it. Because of its relationship to China in that the company that owns TikTok is headquartered in China, there were concerns that the Chinese government could use TikTok to propagate misinformation, could use TikTok to suppress certain kinds of viewpoints. Now, TikTok says that's not happening, that they are beholden to no country. TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. But still, lawmakers saying to millions of younger Americans who use this app, that you might not be worried about this now, but you might be one day. Okay, but it's still up to this company whether they sell their app to somebody else. That's what the Biden administration says they have to do or they'll ban it. But would the government, would Congress, would President Biden, would they actually take the step of banning this thing? That's the debate that's happening right now in Congress. If the Biden administration were to choose to ban TikTok, a lot of legal experts say that that is a rocky legal road because of certain laws that protect the free flow of information and and certainly the First Amendment as well. And TikTok has used those laws previously to protect itself in court. But there are efforts in Congress to create new laws that would just straight up ban TikTok, some of them, and others would allow the Biden administration more authority to regulate TikTok and to potentially ban it. You damn well know that you cannot protect the data and security of this committee or the 150 million users of your app because it is an extension of the CCP. And it's really hard to understand how it would even work because this is so new. This is such a novel concept. Like you could take it off the app store, some speculate, but maybe that would still preserve TikTok on the phones that already had it. You could stop certain kinds of transactions relating to TikTok. And they say, by the way, TikTok's point of view in all of this is that they believe they're doing everything they can to protect U.S. user data. They say that they are not influenced by any foreign government. And they even said in relation to that hearing that the day wasn't, I'll quote them directly here, the day was dominated by political grandstanding. Mm. So they are saying that Congress really took this and made it political, uh, despite the fact that we saw really bipartisan support uh, to do something about TikTok. But then that makes me think, like, if TikTok is standing up, essentially saying, like, sorry, you can't make us sell anything. Um, It makes me wonder if if this ban would become a more real thing. But, Jay, like, the thing that's shocking about this to me is usually when Congress gets all upset about an industry, it's because everyone else, all their constituents are upset about the industry, right? Like, constituents are upset about airlines, so we're going to have a hearing on airlines. Well, if usership numbers are worth anything, Americans love TikTok, right? So, So how would users react here? 
There are 150 million estimated Americans on TikTok. There were influencers who flocked to Capitol Hill to try to lobby lawmakers and say, don't take away this beloved app. Some people said that it helped them grow their business, that they get sales through TikTok that they would never get otherwise. Other influencers said this is their primary source of income. There's a whole industry around being a TikTok influencer, Brad. The last two and a half years, we've been able to sell 30,000 greeting cards and 95% of our orders come from TikTok. So I talked with one creator, her name is Callie Goodwin. She sells greeting cards on her TikTok account. Our cards are less than $3 and they come pre-stamped. And she says lawmakers just don't understand how the app is used by average Americans. And she's trying to get that message across that it is safe. I think we're talking about things that are hypothetically an issue, but have not actually proven to be um, a security threat or an issue at this point. I also spoke with another dancing creator. His name is Imani Carrier. And he acknowledged there are security concerns with TikTok, but he says there are also positives too, and he wants members of Congress to acknowledge that. Uh, it's completely changed my life all around. Like being a shy kid, uh, it's given me the opportunity to, to, to really promote just who I am as a person. And so the question is, what does Congress do to respond to that? We asked one lawmaker, Troy Nels, who's a staunch Republican, what his response is to those influencers. Those influencers, congressmen, who it's their livelihood, what's your message to them? I'll find another job. But then there are other questions as to what Congress would do here. One of the things we did hear from members of Congress, though, is that they say to these young people that they have serious security concerns about this app. And the message that came out of this hearing was, even if you, as a TikTok user, don't have these concerns, a lot of these lawmakers, Republican and Democrat, say that you should. All right. Jay O'Brien there at the Capitol. Really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up on Start Here, they left school without mentioning the gun they gave to their son, and then he used it. Parents go on trial after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life you got to compromise on. Like when I want burritos, but my wife wants salad, the compromise is we get salads. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who doesn't take the time to really hear your health concerns or who's in a rush to end your appointments. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network 
network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. We talked yesterday about the shooting at a Colorado school where a 17-year-old student who regularly had his bag searched suddenly pulled out a gun and opened fire. The scene is not secure. Student has a weapon. Do not know where they are. It turned out he had brought a weapon to his previous school as well, which prompted this so-called specialized safety plan. Early yesterday morning, he was found dead. Once again, seeing helicopters, news, police. We talked about the anger from some in that community who felt like there were plenty of warning signs to justify more proactive measures from the school. And so I rushed over here for the fourth time this year to get my son out of a lockdown. And this isn't the only school, of course, where an act of violence was carried out by someone who is exhibiting a lot of red flags. A Michigan appeals court is deciding whether to bring charges against the parents of school shooter Ethan Crumbly. What actions or inactions did the two defendants have that led to this shooting? Recently, a Michigan appeals court was considering a case that could have profound implications for parents and whether they go on trial for a shooting spree by their kid. Yesterday, that court reached its decision. ABC's Trevor Alt has been reporting on this. Trevor, this was the Oxford High School shooting outside Detroit, right, where the, where the shooter had been exhibiting troubling signs. Like, everyone's meeting with him, but no one seems to know that he has a gun on him that day at school. Exactly, Brad, and it was the day where the shooter's parents were called in the morning of that massacre, and prosecutors say declined to take him home. Did you keep the gun and ammunition in your backpack with you that day? Yes. Since then, Ethan Crumbly, that shooter, has already pleaded guilty to every crime resulting from that massacre. He's pleaded guilty to murder. He's pleaded guilty to terrorism. He's possibly facing life in prison. What this is about now is something we've never seen before. How are you pleading to count for? Not guilty. After all of the school shootings that we've seen, this is the first instance where the parents are now going to go to trial themselves. So his parents, James and Jennifer Crumbly, they've pleaded not guilty to four counts each of involuntary manslaughter, where basically the prosecutors say, yes, Ethan Crumbly brought that gun into the school, he pulled the trigger, he killed four of his fellow students, he injured seven other people, including a teacher, but the parents were acting so egregiously, they ignored so many warning signs that they too have to be held criminally responsible. This intentional act was foreseeable. This is a case where months before the shooting, these parents knew he had reported hallucinations, they knew he had asked to go to the doctor, and they did nothing. And the attorneys for these parents tried to fight this. They said, you know, you can't hold parents responsible for the crimes of their children. And until the prosecution can show that the parents were more a part of knowing that was the plan and that it was foreseeable, he would actually take a gun and shoot other people, um, they'd be charged as aiders and abettors. And that's, that's obviously not the facts in this case. But the judges are saying in this case, there could be enough evidence for the jury to find these parents guilty. And so now it will go to trial, Brad. Yeah, I was going to say, this is potentially like precedent setting case. It's not given that the parents are being found guilty of anything like this just means it can go to trial. But what specific issues did this appellate court 
have to consider. Well, it was very clear that they are aware that this is extremely unique and that you do not charge parents for a crime that their child commits just because, you know, you're the parent and you're responsible for your child. They say this is an extremely unique circumstance. My wife always rolls her eyes at me when I talk about the slippery slope, but it is a valid concern. The judges made several points here that they also acknowledge, yes, this could be potentially argued as a slippery slope of we don't necessarily want to charge parents for every crime that their child would commit. But they said there were several fronts where the parents very clearly missed obvious warning signs and could potentially have led to the deaths of students. James Crumbly had no knowledge of what EC was planning. He was had... called over to the school that day, wasn't he? He was. And then the day of the shooting, when they were called in, according to prosecutors, Ethan Crumbly drew on a piece of paper a person who had been shot and wrote things like blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop, help me. At that point, wouldn't that warrant looking in the backpack if he's suicidal and he has access to a gun? The thing that they are really pointing to is as all this was going on for months and months where Ethan Crumbly, according to prosecutors, was almost obviously battling severe mental health problems, his parents bought him the gun that he used in the shooting. James Crumbly did not know that E.C. had access to that firearm. He bought him the gun. Well, and the first thing he did when he heard about the school shooting was go back home to see if the gun was there. So certainly was on the top of his head. And so there were several fronts here where the judges said these parents had to be aware of all of the warning signs and for that they could be considered criminally responsible for what happened here. Right, although even though the... the Prosecutors are saying, like, we're not looking to make, like, a wider example. We just think these particular parents committed a crime here. You can kind of see this more populist anger rising up right now from people who are like, we, we know what the problems are. We see mentally anguished young, primarily men, with access to guns do this again and again and again. Nothing's changed. This, perhaps, could be a big change in terms of criminal justice. Thanks so much, Trevor. Thank you, Brett. Some types of crimes can seem constant, like they've been a thing for years, they don't change, they just are, and yet that can sometimes obscure when there is truly a surge in that type of crime. People don't swivel their heads around in the same way. Well, if you've been following hip-hop in just the last few years, you know that there have been several notable killings of prominent rappers year after year, and yet it's often chalked up to being a hip-hop violence issue, just something that's around, very much a generalized conversation. Recently, though, ABC's Mona Kosar Abdi looked into these questions as part of a special report that's now airing on Hulu. It's called Tone Deaf, and Mona joins us now. Mona, I'm going to confess, like I do remember hearing about high-profile murders of rappers in the 90s. I remember the Biggie and Tupac stuff, and then I guess I just stopped paying attention. What has been changing in these last few years in the industry? So many of us remember the high-profile deaths of Biggie and Tupac in the late 90s. Well, since those deaths, about 90 hip-hop artists have died due to gun violence. Wow. And one artist has died per year since 2018. XXX was rushed to North Broward Hospital where doctors pronounced him dead. Chicago rapper King Von is FBG Duck. PNB Rock. The rapper was shot during a robbery inside the South. So it sounds like we keep hearing headlines about uh, famous rappers or up-and-coming rappers dying due to gun violence. And so that's kind of what we look at in this special is that hip-hop is a relatively new genre, but more artists die in this genre than in any other genre. I'm a female family. Ain't no way around it. Family. Ain't no never let up. 
So even in just the last few months, take off uh, a rapper who's part of the group Migos, that really sent shockwaves through the industry. 28-year-old, whose real name is Kishnikari Ball, was shot and killed overnight in Houston while attending... Migos is really popular, and he died in such a violent way. What we're going to lose with Takeoff being gone is an incredible human being, a kind, decent individual who thought outside the box. Another death that really uh, hit the community hard and hit fans hard was Pop Smoke. She liked the way he was a rapper from Canarsie, Brooklyn. He had just turned 20 years old. He rents an Airbnb out in Los Angeles to celebrate. And he died during a home invasion. Police say several masked men broke into the home and shot Pop Smoke multiple times. Four suspects were arrested, two of them just minors. And he ended up um, getting shot in that altercation and later dying at the hospital. When you look at this violence, I mean, what are the effects of that violence, both sort of up close and, and more broadly? Well, to fans of the industry, I mean, they are really invested in these artists. They see them rise to the top. They love their music. They love their style. And they have such a huge impact so fast on the industry. And so fans are consistently grieving. You lose one artist mm. uh, per year since 2018. And so it's it's some of their favorite artists. But we also went to Canarsie, Brooklyn, where he was raised. And we spoke with his mother because we wanted to see this loss through the eyes of a grieving mother. Said, Sometimes I can't be Pop Smoke's mom. She said something so profound to me, which she said, she's Pop Smoke's mom, but she's Bashar's mommy. I'll always be Bashar's mommy. Bashar Jackson, his, um, his birth name. And so it was... It was really devastating to see her still grieving three years later and still trying to cope with the loss of her son. Somebody said something on Facebook or Instagram or how his music has taken them through bad times, stopped them from committing suicides, made them get up every morning and go to do whatever it is they had to do. And that, that still blows my mind. We also met um, Zodia Freeman, who is the mother of T.Dot Wu. Both boys were raised in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Both of them grew up together. They rose to fame together. He kept saying, Mom, I'm working. I have a surprise for you. And you're going to see. I'm, I'm going to make you proud, Mom. And they both died within two years apart due to gun violence. Did you ever find out what the surprise was? It was the deal, the record deal he wanted to tell me about. And we also saw just how... Both of them were dealing with the grief of losing their sons. So it's just interesting to see how these two mothers are grieving, but mm. they now also have formed a friendship and a bond over something so tragic. I, I think a lot of people wonder, like, why hip hop? Why, why do we see this in rap more often? Like, I feel like it's very loaded to ask whether violence is more specific to this genre. And yet, even in your reporting, despite it being loaded, I hear very different answers to that question. Right. Many critics say that... Um, the music is violent, right? You're rapping mm. about gang activity, you're rapping about guns and drugs, and that is a reason why we're seeing so much violence in hip hop. But that's not necessarily the case because sure. what you need to understand is a lot of these artists come from communities where that is prevalent, where gun violence is prevalent, where drug activity is prevalent. And so they are only rapping about what they know, they're only rapping about what they see. And once they rise to fame, they're not necessarily removed from that. You're saying like it's not about the music is the like the violent thing, but it is a real phenomenon where you have people who have maybe are like more immersed in violence around them entering this particular area. Definitely. I mean, we spoke with rapper G Herbo, who's from Chicago. Got a war zone 
he grew up in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago, and he says that he saw so much death that at the age of 16, he was numb. I, I have friends that didn't even see 18, see their 18th birthday, you know? He would see his friends' bodies in a casket, and he wouldn't have any emotion. My younger brother, he didn't see his 25th birthday. He died uh, seven days before his 25th birthday. Don't stand too close to me. Later on, he decided to go to therapy. And so now through his music, he uses his music as therapy and to talk about um, dealing with PTSD, some of the trauma that he, he has experienced and how it manifests today. Being vulnerable, saying, hey, um, this is where I was then, but this is where I am now, you know, and, and I did that by focusing and not, you know, making excuses and just doing whatever's necessary to change my situation. Are there solutions or are there steps to be taken here if we're seeing like sort of this continuing outbreak and in some cases even escalations of violence? I mean, what do you do? So one way to address this problem is to not look at hip hop as the root of the problem, but as a possible solution. So we spoke to Dr. Jaleel Abdul-Adil, who is a psychologist with the University of Illinois, and he's actually using hip hop music, particularly G Herbo's music, in his sessions when he's working with young kids. I was impressed by the fact that he's able to connect some of the negative experiences to the mental health conditions particularly his use of the word trauma. He does make a clear distinction as well that not all hip-hop is promoting violence. There is hip-hop that um, has very empowering lyrics. There are hip-hop that promotes a very positive message. And the good thing is the young people are expressing there's a problem so we can begin to access and treat the problem versus others which are saying, I've lived a problematic lifestyle and I love it and I'm glorifying it. And I'm His idea is to use hip hop music and see what lyrics that these young people that he's working with resonate with, for example. And then he says from there he can talk to them further about some of the things that they're dealing with and also possibly start incorporating other artists that they haven't heard of that are spreading more positive messages. And so it's about, for him at least, using the music as part of the solution and not putting the blame on hip-hop music. Yeah, music reflects the broader culture. It's also shedding light on these broader questions we are facing as a culture. Um, the special, again, Tone Death, now airing on Hulu. Mona Kosar-Abdi, great reporting. Thank you. Brad, thank you. Always a pleasure. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, look out below. Your future lawyer is begging you. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. It's an alpine whodunit, or as some people say, the bougiest trial of the century. This week, a trial began involving the actress and goop founder Gwyneth Paltrow over accusations by a 76-year-old man that she smashed into him on a Utah ski slope back in 2016. As she turns her head back down, she screams, 
then skis back into the back of Terry Sanderson. Now, do you care about this case? I don't know, maybe. Maybe you believe the lawyers for Terry Sanderson, who say he was minding his own business when Gwyneth Paltrow plowed into him, giving him broken bones and brain injuries. Or maybe you believe Paltrow. We believe it to be utter BS. But what I find fascinating about this is that it revolves around rules of the mountain that you might not even know are written down somewhere. I've been skiing a few times, not a ton, but when everyone's whizzing around the slopes, it's easy to think this is organized chaos. That's what I thought, shred at your own risk. A video just went viral a few weeks ago of a guy sliding through a tow line, knocking people over left and right, leaving a trail of destruction. And yet there are official right-of-way rules. Same as car traffic, same as passing ships. According to the National Ski Area Association's Code of Conduct, the skier further uphill has to give way to the skier below them. If you don't, a crash is your fault. She knew that skiing that way, looking somewhere else, blindly skiing down a mountain by looking up and to the side, was reckless. The 76-year-old's lawyer say he was the downhill skier, so this is an open and shut case. But get this, Paltrow's team is claiming she was actually downhill and this guy skied into her. Gwyneth was hurt by Mr. Sanderson's negligence. It rattled her and it physically hurt her. Based on the number of accidents every year on ski slopes, including 57 fatalities last season, you could almost consider skiing an extreme sport. And yet here you've got people recounting their positioning like it's a fender bender where no one has a dash cam. In fact, these types of crashes and disputes have become so common, some ski resorts have started welcoming police officers onto the slopes. They wear skis, they wear police jackets, and they respond to crashes. There's even a cottage industry of lawyers who represent victims, which might make you wonder if sliding downhill carries so much potential legal liability, is there insurance for that? Well, you might want to check the policies you've already got. Homeowners and renters insurance often covers liability in cases like this. Or you could just stay downhill from everything and stay in the lodge. The best part of skiing remains the après ski. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas Baker, Vika Aronson, Iru Ekpanobi, Cameron Chertavian, Anthony Ali, and Tara Gimble. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, Liz Alessi, and our intern Amira Williams. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry, Sony Salzman, John Santucci, and Stephanie Ebbs. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. 